The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Claire? We'll have the last of these strays rounded up by tomorrow. You're so busy, I haven't had much chance to talk. Uh, yes, sir. I mean, uh, Joe talked to you. Well, you mean about going to Mexico? What's this about Mexico? Well, the other night we talked about the two years I spent with Juarez in Mexico. He thought now, after the roundup, it might be fun to go down there. I see. That's all I talked to you about? Yes, sir. What was he supposed to talk about, sir? And Clay, we, we understand what a rough time you've had these past 10 or 12 years, making your way alone. And uh, understand that your way of life is different from ours as a result. It's, your values are different. The past is past part of the family now and we'd like you to stay part of the family hope that our way of life our values will be yours from now on well sir I, I don't know you don't know what I mean I appreciate what you've said and you're very generous but I've got to be honest with you I'm not sure that this is my kind of life well, are you sure it isn't your kind of life? No, sir. Would you try it? Yes, sir. Good. Let's forget these romantic notions about Mexico. <laughs> well, that was Joe's idea. Well, he was influenced by you. Try to use your influence the right way. Yes, sir, I'll try. Good. See you at the house. Welcome everyone. It is Thursday, November 7th, 2019. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Whether people are consciously aware of it or not, Values, and in particular conflicting values, are at the root of all political debates and encounters. Our show today is part of a continuation of last week's focus on the Canadian election and on all of the fake news, screams of racism and populism that were directed against the People's Party of Canada and its leader, Maxime Bernier. And what I have to say today relate to some of the issues that we didn't have time to fit into last week's broadcast, but they're issues that transcend the Canadian scene. We'll get underway right after our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, and follow us on SoundCloud, hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, our archive broadcasts, and of course where we encourage you to offer your financial support. And you know when you do that, you become part of our effort to enlighten others about the true nature of freedom and capitalism. 
Now, anyone who heard our show last week might have noticed that I went on a bit of a rant in my reaction to some of the unjustifiable mainstream media accusations of racism and populism made against Maxime Bernier and the People's Party of Canada, the PPC. And after hearing from some of you, I know I'm not alone in pondering why someone doesn't sue these accusers for libel and defamation or slander, although I've been presented with some possibilities as to why this has not happened and might not happen. You know, I even went so far as to consult my Canadian Law Dictionary to check out the possibilities of taking such action. And that dictionary defines libel as, quote, defamation in a permanent form, as distinguished from slander, which is defamation by spoken words. It is a defamatory statement which, when published, tends to expose the complainant in the minds of ordinary people to contempt, hatred or ridicule, or conveys an imputation disparaging the complainant in his trade, business, profession, calling, or office, end quote. Well, if that wasn't the intent of every writer and commentator who screamed racism in the past election, I don't know what ever would be. And defamation is defined as the following, quote, the publication of a statement which tends to lower a person in the estimation of right-thinking members of society generally, or which tends to make them shun or avoid that person. Defamation is either libel or slander. And slander, of course, is defined as the publication of a defamatory matter by word of mouth or in transient form, giving rise to a right of action for damages. Thus it is actionable to impute that a person committed a crime, or that he is suffering from venereal disease, or to impute that a professional person is a quack or incompetent, to impute unchastity against a woman, all of which are actionable without proof of special damages, end quote. And of course, it also cites various uh, legal precedents for these definitions. And interestingly, the issue of truth or falsehood did not arise in any of these definitions, but that being a separate consideration from the nature of libel and slander themselves. Now, one of the possible reasons that no one's suing over libelous accusations made by the media is because given today's laws and legal priorities, those being unjustly and groundlessly accused of things like being racist, quote-unquote, do not trust the courts to rule justly. Freedom of speech, while being eroded and under attack when it comes to those expressing views on the right, has become a license for those on the left to spew whatever they want without seeming recourse or without being held accountable when that freedom is exercised by those who scream racism. So in this case at least, it may be preferable to address this issue, given its political context and dimensions, in the court of public opinion rather than in the court of law, although I'm not making that a hard-bound argument. But especially because most of the racism being alleged is based more on an ideological definition than a legal or even strictly political one. So where do we begin in attempting to put all of this into context? Well, I think we might begin by starting this way. It has to be understood that all of the claims of racism related to accusations hurled against representatives of the right, and this is worldwide, stem from an absolutely ridiculous but fundamental belief on the part of those making these libelous charges. And that belief is the idea that restricting immigration to manageable levels and or acknowledging the jurisdiction of nations within one's borders amounts to some form of racism or prejudice. I mean, how stupid can you get? And that's the whole argument in its entirety. It's laughable 
because race or identity politics has absolutely nothing to do with establishing the numbers. Like Donald Trump, Maxime Bernier was constantly being accused of being against immigration when this is, and never was, the case. The fake news and the fake accusations that accompany this myth originate from a single source, those who call themselves globalists and wish to see the world under a global dictatorship. It is nothing new and has been a death wish of many people going back, you know, as, back as far in history as one can reasonably see. And that's why the mainstream media always wants to bring up immigration as its core justification for being able to shout racist at anyone who would restrict immigration. You can currently see it in the United States in the polarization created by the Democrats and the left against Donald Trump, and in the same polarization created in Europe over the Brexit debate. And we heard a Swedish example of the same phenomenon last week on the show from Swedish YouTuber Jellybean Jen, who warned other nations not to follow the same open borders path that has been experimented with by Sweden. But why all the accusations of racism and xenophobia in every country and jurisdiction where resistance to these open border policies is beginning to rise? Well, here's an example of how the mechanics of the racist machine works in Canada. Now, in Canada, Justin Trudeau has set Canada's immigration rate to a figure of around 350,000 annually. Maxime Bernier proposed setting it around 150,000 annually. Now, these two differing statistics alone, in the eyes of globalists, make Trudeau a saint and Bernier the racist devil incarnate. If the issue is truly about race, then it's pretty easy to see which of the two is the greatest offender. Yet, because he's in the 350,000 club, Trudeau's able to escape public judgment about everything from his blackface antics to his disrespect for foreign cultures to his associations with those who would put race and identity politics in the center of all their thinking and action. The same holds true for the contrast between Donald Trump and the Democrats in the United States. It's precisely the same phenomenon because it's all about globalism to begin with. You know, notice that this debate does not exist in countries where so-called multiculturalism is not practiced or tolerated. It's a debate only in those countries where multicultural policies of political correctness, restrictions on freedom of speech, and other policies restricting individual freedom have been encroaching on Western nations. And those are the countries and jurisdictions that were cited last week by Heather Malick of the Toronto Star and that we quoted as part of her diatribe of hate and prejudice against Maxime Bernier. And she cited the U.S., Great Britain, Poland, Hungary, and others, which she said they're nations who have turned venomous. And by turning venomous, she meant tightening up on their immigration policies or being strict about their immigration policies. That globalists must resort to such racist accusations to promote and justify their goals and cause speaks to the evil of globalism itself. Evil ends naturally accompany evil means. Sometimes the racist intimidations are not necessary, such as is the case when the victims of the intimidation knowingly or unknowingly participate with and accept it, perhaps even mistakenly believing it to be a good thing due to a false sense of altruism which, by the way, is not charity or concern for others, but sacrifice, either of the self to others or of others to the self. Or maybe they've just been silenced by the cloak of political correctness. 
The irony of all this is that it is the left itself that actually enacts specific legislation based on racial and cultural grounds, the very definition of racism, whereas the right, being based on individualism, if the right is being properly defined, is incapable of doing so. The PPC, whose candidates' ethnic and racial origins encompassed about every imaginable background, and which as a matter of policy did not support a single policy based on race, sex, or other factor related to the identity politics of collectivism, was laughably the only party cited as being racist for refusing to consider race in its philosophy or platform. Think about that. All of Canada's other parties, all on the left, explicitly endorse one or more policies based on racial, sexual, religious, or some other collective grounds of identity. None but for the PPC saw the individual as the smallest minority, nor spoke out for individual rights. When Maxime Bernier insisted that he would quote-unquote do nothing for Muslims, for Christians, for Jews, for blacks, for whites, for Asians, and other groups of people defined by their differences from each other, in a complete turnaround, he insisted that he would do everything possible for all of those groups of people as individuals and as Canadians. And of course, putting Canada first is one of the reasons why Bernier was being compared to U.S. President Donald Trump, whose similar mantra was putting America first, or Nigel Farage, who wants to put Britain first. Now, Political altruism is the source of the problem, and right now it all boils down to immigration policies and policies regarding national sovereignty, two policies that go hand in hand. Citizens of the nation being asked to open its borders are being told that the rights of immigrants and refugees trump their own, or should at least be treated as being on par. So, in other words, they're being asked to sacrifice their own interests and welfare for those coming from other nations. Nations, incidentally, that have refused to adopt the values necessary to create the same level of prosperity and security enjoyed in the West. Nowhere in the world but in the Western nations is such a notion being entertained. The countries from which these immigrants and refugees are running certainly do not share any such notions, and in addition, and most importantly, do not share Western values in general. Now, most fascinatingly, just as I was about to begin production of our show today, the story broke that 11 Canadian senators actually formed their own caucus. I think they're calling it the CSG for a Canadian senators group, but I'm not too sure about that. Uh, one comprised of senators with wide representation from several provinces. And apparently, according to some early news accounts that I really haven't had the time to fully examine, have done so as an expression of the principle that the will of the majority does not trump regional interests. Which, of course, is just one of the reasons why we have a Senate in the first place, both here in Canada and in the United States. And this is why, again, PPC leader Maxime Bernier was so right in insisting that the federal government should keep its paws off of provincial jurisdictions, since every province is its own political base and has a separate interest and jurisdiction from the rest, and this is all based on its geography. Nor should the will of the majority trump the outcomes of riding jurisdictions. Otherwise, you get more and more talk like Brexit in Britain and now Wexit in Canada being based on a breakaway from Canada by the Western provinces. After all, why should someone in Toronto have any jurisdiction over how Alberta or Saskatchewan runs its economic, cultural, and social affairs of the body politic within its own borders? 
Those who believe that government should be based solely on total national vote numbers in the sense of pure majority rule, regardless of internally defined jurisdictions, whether provinces, states, or ridings, I mean, they have no idea just how undemocratic that notion is. Voting itself does not define the nature of a democracy, no matter how integral it is to the mechanics of any nation, whether that country is democratic or not. No doubt these are questions we'll have to delve into again on future episodes of our show. Now coming up next is Jason Seiler from his October 24th YouTube Blue Collar Logic presentation in which he extends the jurisdictional issues involved at the root of the Canadian dilemma to that of Britain and the United States. There is one thing that we should learn from the Brexit situation in England, and that is, as a citizen, once you give your power away, it's almost impossible to get it back. Throughout history, we've seen that it usually takes some kind of an uprising or a war. The power-hungry won't give up the control they've taken just because the people voted for it. As most of you are aware, the United Kingdom voted to leave the European Union. They're upset about the same things that a lot of us have been upset about with our federal government. It simply has too much power over us. The European Union, like our country, was created to allow states to be different while ensuring the free movement of people, goods, services, and capital within the internal market, along with security. The two biggest reasons the Brits voted to leave concerned sovereignty and immigration. The people want to make their own decisions as to how they run their country and who they let in to their country. Is that too much to ask? Well, apparently it is because it's been three and a half years since the British voted to leave. Former Prime Minister Theresa May couldn't get it done, and now Boris Johnson has taken a crack at it. Think about this. A people of a sovereign nation have lost the ability to choose the direction of their own country. The European globalists are doing everything they can to stop Brexit, just like the American left are trying to oust an America first president. Democrats are openly against putting America first. They're for an immigration system that puts the immigrant first. They're for an educational system that puts the teacher first. They're for environmental policy that puts the rest of the world first. No wonder they hate Donald Trump. Their slogan should be, America last. They won't even discuss the economy. They refuse to talk about the fact that minorities are doing better under this administration than pretty much ever before. And Democrats aren't just refusing to talk about it, they're trying to stop it. Now, ask yourself, why would Democrats want to stop a president that is achieving historic results for minorities across the country? Could there possibly be a good answer to that question? I don't think so. We know how their policies create victims. We know how they pit the rich and the poor against each other. We know how they exploit one's race to divide us up into voting blocks. Democrats are willing to destroy everything good the Trump administration has accomplished to move forward with their big government globalist agenda. Democrats have two main ways they further their leftist goals, indoctrination through the educational system and government dependence. If someone is okay with being dependent on the system, it's not hard to convince them to vote for the party who promises to give them more free stuff. The Democrats pretty much have that voter demographic on lockdown. According to Debt.org, 
63% of people who make less than $15,000 a year vote Democrat. And of course, their policies are designed to put more people into that demographic. If you think that sounds far-fetched, ask yourself this question. Why would Democrats promote policies that move people out of that demographic, a demographic that skews so much into their favor? Once Americans start making more than 50K a year, they tend to vote more often for Republicans. And that's why Democratic policies don't promote quality education, independence, or self-reliance. The other way they convince people to support their agenda is through the indoctrination in our educational system. 51% of young people view socialism in a positive light. That's six percentage points higher than their view on capitalism, the very system that has made their lives so good. The disconnect between how good young Americans have it and why they have it so good is astonishing. They think that America is so rich, the government should provide free health care, daycare, education, and housing, among other things. But they never stop to think, why is America so much richer than other nations? According to the last census in 2010, 80% of poor American households have air conditioning, and 75% of the poor own a vehicle. These are a couple things that make life a lot better. And guess what? Democrats openly talk about making it harder and more expensive to own gas-guzzling vehicles and to live in air-conditioned dwellings. That's not a coincidence. Right now, unemployment is at record lows for minorities. Our stock markets are about as high as they've ever been. And the majority of the poor have air conditioning in their homes, a vehicle to get around in, and cable or satellite TV to watch. What is it exactly that the Democrats and the globalists want so badly that they're willing to change a system that has provided the best results for the majority of the people? And the answer is power. They're not concerned for the well-being of the poor, and they're not concerned for the well-being of the planet either. They're only concerned about gaining power. And just like what we're seeing in England right now, once you give your power away, you're going to have to fight like crazy to get it back. And that's the simple truth. It's interesting to observe that Donald Trump in the United States and supporters of Brexit in Britain, and apparently only Maxime Bernier and the PPC party in Canada, have been criticized by the mainstream media as being populists or have been accused of representing populism. Now, I have to admit that I was quite shocked when I looked into the background, meaning, and history of the term populism. I think you might be a little bit shocked, too, because for the most part, and certainly in today's political climate, it's pretty much the opposite of what most people might think it to be. Now, I got this from two different sources, and this first is from the Oxford Concise Dictionary of Politics, written by Ian McLean and Alistair Macmillan. And this is regarding the definition of populism, and it pretty well cites three different definitions. Number one, and I quote, a movement in the United States that gave expression to the grievances and disillusionment of largely Western farmers who felt themselves oppressed by debt and let down by dishonored promises of cheap land and cheap railroad rates. The movement began in the 1870s, peaked with the populist parties running of a candidate for president and electing four senators in 1892 took a leading role in the Democratic Party in 1896, and gradually merged into the more broadly-based, quote-unquote, progressive movement. And then here's a second definition from the same source. Quote, a democratic and collectivist movement in late 19th century Russia. Populist is a direct translation of Russian narodnik, 
first recorded in the Oxford English Dictionary in a 1985 article by one of the leading populists, P. Milyuknov. And the third definition, again from the same source, says, more generally, populism is support for the preference of ordinary people. And then it goes on to say this, the meaning has always been somewhat derogatory. Insofar as a specific set of populist beliefs can be identified, they involve defense of the supposed traditions of the little man against change seen as imposed by powerful outsiders, which might variously be governments, businesses, or trade unions. These beliefs are disproportionately prevalent among the petite bourgeois. Although the Russian populists were intellectuals, going among the peasantry, most populism is anti-intellectual in tone. Movements which have been generally regarded as populist include Peronism, Pujadism, and the U.S. presidential campaigns of Ross Perot in 1992 and 96. Politicians of any party may appeal to populist sentiment when it suits them and denounce such appeals when that suits them, end quote. And this is from William Sapphire's Political Dictionary, The Language of Politics, and here he defines the word populist, and I quote, attuned to the needs of the people, now used with a connotation of old-fashioned radicalism, a liberalism rooted deeply in U.S. history. Lyndon Johnson was called by friendly writers a political leader in the old populist tradition. When Jimmy Carter invade against favoritism and the Nixon pardon in his 1976 acceptance speech with, I see no reason why big shot crooks should go free while the poor ones go to jail, that too was described as populist. The word is used today with a small p as a reminder of the theories rather than the structure of the populist or People's Party, which was a political party of a radical nature that won substantial backing in the U.S. In 1890, a state party calling itself the People's Party was founded in Kansas. In that same year, various farmers' alliance groups, founded largely to fight the railroads, scored heavily in the South and in the West. There, candidates advocating new economic legislation favored by the alliances were elected in five senatorial contests, six gubernatorial, and 46 congressional races. This led to the organization of a national populist party in 1891. At its convention in Omaha, it demanded, among other things, now get this, public ownership of the railroads, the telegraph, and the telephone systems, direct election of U.S. senators, a graduated income tax, and cheaper money. The delegates, coming predominantly from the Farmers' Organization and the Knights of Labor, wrote a radical platform calling for a permanent and perpetual union of the labor forces of the United States. The interests of rural and civic urban labor are the same. Their enemies are identical. We believe that the time has come when the railroad corporations will either own the people or the people must own the railroads. Other planks were no more friendly to capitalists. When the populist candidate General James B. Weaver won 22 electoral college and 1,029,846 popular votes in the 1892 election, many people, including some considered liberals, were fearful of an impending revolution. The party lingered on until 1908, but most of its members had returned to the democratic fold by then, and the word is now used by politicians who want to identify with the little man who can be found under John Q. Public, end quote. 
Now, on, you know, on every count, the populism of the past has been collectivist in nature and opposed to individualism and capitalism. So it's not surprising that so much of the populist movements in the U.S. were absorbed by the Democratic Party, is it? And notice how the same mainstream media, which today uses the word populist in a disparaging and insulting way when applying it to any groups on the right, used the same word in a positive and assertive way when applying it to politicians and groups on the left. So has anything really changed, even after more than a century of the same philosophical disagreements? Of all these definitions and histories of populist movements, one thing stands out. Only the idea that a populist party being defined as one with support for the preference of ordinary people can be applied to the People's Party, since on every other ground, the PPC is the exact opposite of what has been called populist in the past. And this also holds true of the voter support for Donald Trump in the U.S. and for Brexit in Britain. And for that matter, for parties and groups labeled populist in Europe as well. And the big question that begs asking in this context is, so what's wrong with a political party having the support or preference of ordinary people? Isn't that what true democracy is supposed to be all about? Isn't that what the left always argues for? Bottom line, the word populist pretty much means whatever its user wants it to mean. So be sure to define or be defined before venturing into the world of populism. Now one of the most populist issues of the left today is no doubt the whole issue of climate change and environmentalism, although the left does not identify these issues as such. These are the very issues that are populist in the old mob rule concept of that term as it manifested itself in history. And by the way, the whole climate change scam began many years ago and is nothing new to the political debate only of the last few elections. And as we revealed in our recent broadcast identifying the death cult of Greta Thunberg, how dare she, the whole environmental movement such as we know it today began in earnest following the Vietnam War and was identified and written about by Ayn Rand way back in the late 60s in her book The New Left, The Anti-Industrial Revolution. And with that, I think it's about time we take a break for a smile. Here's comedian Don Heron, also known as Charlie Farquharson, with his take on the political state of environmentalism in Canada back when Ernie Eves and Ralph Klein were the premiers of their respective provinces. I know that Harass was the premier that was of Ontario. That started your uncommonly nonsensical resolution. And his place has now been took by my own private member. <laughs> I'm talking about Hernia Heaves from Parisan Muskoka. I don't know if he has anything to do with your doer fella, Gary, that uh, work, works under the golden boy in charge of all your DPs. <laughs> but I do know he's been awful palsy-walsy, our urn with the Premier of Alberta, Calvin Klein. <laughs> Ain't that his name? The one looks like Fred Flintstone's neighbor, Barney Ruppel. <laughs> he's just found out he's got separators in his cabinet. My God, we've had a separator in our cream shed for 20 years, never give us no trouble at all. 
the wife thinks maybe he imported them separated from Quebec, but I don't think so because the Klein fella has never wanted any of us Eastern creeps and bums in his province, <laughs> even though he'll accept all of our hazardous wastes. I didn't know what that was, your hazardous waste, until Gene Cretton explained by saying it was federal funds spent outside his own writing of Shawinigan. <laughs> and when Gene Cretton passed this movement on the floor of the common house, <laughs> uh, about your coyote discords, that upset both hernia heaves and, and the, 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 the little Klein. They don't believe in your global warnings. <laughs> Klein says it's just a bunch of old dinosaur farts. <laughs> Not to mention your brontosaurus and the sub probably your tyrannosaurus. <laughs> but I say, what about all them city people sitting in their SVUs? Uh, guzzling their gas in the rush hour, bumper to bumper, while they all have nocturnal emissions. <laughs> Not to mention them arsehole spray cans going right up your ozone. <laughs> but nothing is going to be done about the environmentals in Canada because the minister, without the energy to mind our resources, Herb Dollywally, he drives two of them SVUs. So he's just gonna sit there in his office in, in Ottawa and, and, and dolly wally doodles all the day. <laughs> now this whole thing started 10 years ago and I blame Blarney Bulroni. He went, he, I'll tell you what he did. He invit Ronnie Ragin and his nanny to come to Quebec City to sign the free trades, and Blarney's filly Millie was pregnant at the time, so they just sat around the lobby of the shattered front knacker and dropped acid rain. <laughs> Why'd you leave without me? You better get off that horse before you fall off. Come on over here and sit down. Hey, no thanks, I just didn't stand up. I think I feel better. Sorry I don't have any pokey, but... Here. Viva coffee. The last thing I need any more of that pokey. Why'd you leave without me? Just like I told your pa, trouble's been following me all my life. I mean, look what happened to you just on account of me. That's no reason I've been in fights before. Yeah, but this time you were lucky. It was their fists. Next time it could be their guns. Look, Clay, we're brothers. Your fight is my fight. This thing with the miners, we can settle together. Look, you have family now. Don't leave. It won't work, Joe. Clay, we're brothers. We can make it work. Look, let me explain something to you. Just because we're brothers doesn't mean we have to think alike, be alike, do alike. Yes, it happens with some brothers, like you and Adam and Hoss. Why can't it work with you and me? Because it just won't. Look, you lived all your life on the Ponderosa, and you like it. You see, I couldn't. It would be like being in a cage. All right, then I won't ask you to stay at the Ponderosa now. We'll travel around together. You feel you're ready to you settle down. You could no more live my life than I could live yours. Well, how do you know? I've never tried it. Look, you saw what happened to that miner. 
It's happened before and it can happen again. Maybe things like that won't happen, Clay, if we're together. No, it couldn't. Look, look, you just get in my way. Clay, you don't mean that, you know it. Look, will you get it through your head that I don't want you along? I don't need your family and I don't need you. Now, will you go home, Joe? Where you belong? You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. I thought we'd conclude today's observations on the last Canadian federal election by taking a look at some of the statistics concerning voters themselves. This from the National Post of November 1st by Kelly McParland under the heading Voting for the Least Worst. (laughs) Sound familiar? Quote, Wouldn't it be pleasant to enter a voting booth and mark a check beside the name of the candidate you actually supported, admired, or who represented a party you were genuinely enthused about? As opposed, that is, to grudgingly voting for someone you don't particularly care about, but who you figure is the best way to block the candidate or the party you desperately don't want to win. Yes, it's an enticing picture, an election that features attractive candidates representing popular parties that stand for reasonable policies. Unfortunately, for millions of voters, the prospect of voting for, rather than against, a candidate is looking increasingly unlikely. Each new election brings a renewed push of strategic voting by parties that clearly lack enough confidence in themselves to expect they might be able to win on their own attributes. According to a post-poll analysis of October's federal vote, Canadians are becoming addicted to the horse race aspect of political campaigns, more interested in the day-to-day strategic shifts than in simply looking at the parties and deciding which one best reflects their beliefs and aspirations. A survey by the Angus Reid Institute found that just a third of liberal voters made their choice based on the party's actual policies. Instead, 45% were motivated mainly by who they wanted to defeat. Justin Trudeau remains Prime Minister not because he continues to excite voters with his personal magnetism, enticing vision, or superior leadership skills, but because a lot of people really didn't want Andrew Scheer or Jagmeet Singh in his place. Or maybe they wanted Singh but figured he couldn't pull off a victory, so it was better to go with Trudeau even if they weren't wild about him or his record. Scheer didn't do much better. Angus Reid found 65% of conservative voters said they made their choice because they didn't like the alternative. Canadian politics has thus become a contest to convince voters the other guy stinks more than our guy, end quote. Well, McParland then goes on to cite the same voter phenomenon in the United States and in Britain. But the silence was deafening when it came to the avoidance of any mention of the People's Party of Canada. It was the same deafening silence that was heard throughout the electoral coverage of the National Post, outside of the occasional reports on stats from time to time. But to address McParland's opening question, wouldn't it be pleasant to enter a voting booth and mark a check beside the name of a candidate you actually supported? Well, yes, it was, thanks to my being able to vote for the PPC. Otherwise, I would have been among the non-voters, a group we'll be taking a closer look at shortly. But I, for one, am not interested in horse races. In the field of politics, nothing could be more boring for me. To listen to the daily superficiality and shallowness of the mainstream talk radio shows during the last election, and to read the same in the mainstream print media, it was just simply unbearable to the point where I had to shut it out. And I'm a political junkie. I should have been engrossed in the conversations, but to me it was all mind-numbing gibberish. No substance at all. More interestingly, and to reflect the other side of the lesser of evil's coin, 
Were these stats as reported on October 30th in the National Post under the headline Strategy Influenced Third of Voters and reported by Joan Bryden? These stats concerned those who knew which party they would support before the election was called and those who voted on principle or conscious support for a particular party. Quote, Of all the parties, the Conservatives were the most likely to lock in their support early. Fully 50% of respondents who voted for the Tories said they made their choice before the campaign started. By contrast, just 30% of Liberals, 22% of New Democrats, 31% of Bloc Québécois, 35% of Greens, and 31% of supporters of the People's Party of Canada said the same. Overall, 57% said their vote was based on their political convictions, without any thought to their candidates' chances of winning. The 35% who did take strategic voting into account included 39% of Conservative supporters, 43% of Liberals, 28% of New Democrats, 18% of Bloc supporters, 16% of Greens, and 24% of PPC supporters. But while strategic voting was a factor, the poll suggests it wasn't the primary factor of most. Asked to identify the main reason why they chose to vote for a party, 37% said they did so because the platform and values aligned with their own. 9% said their primary motivation was to get rid of Justin Trudeau's liberal government. 6% said it was to vote against another party. And 4% said they voted mainly for the best local candidate. End quote. And that's quite remarkable given some of the other stats and assumptions about voters that we've been discussing. And it may seem that those stats actually contradict the premises of what Kelly McParland addressed in his editorial. But remember, we're dealing with completely different subgroups of voters with regard to each set of stats. And when we return from our next break, we'll be looking at yet another group of eligible voters, those who do not vote and why. Now, I want to thank listener Trevor D. for drawing our attention to philosopher-novelist Ayn Rand's incredible first interview, broadcast 60 years ago in 1959, two years after her book Atlas Shrugged made it to the bestsellers list in America. Interviewed by Mike Wallace, the following excerpt from that interview is focused on Rand's political views and some of her predictions as forecast in 1959. Now, one of the principal achievements of this country in the past 20 years particularly, I think most people agree, is the gradual growth of social protective legislation based on the principle that we are our brother's keepers. How do you feel about the political trends of the United States, the uh, Western world? The way everybody feels, except more consciously. I feel that it is terrible, that you see destruction all around you, and that you are moving toward disaster until and unless all those welfare state conceptions have been reversed and rejected. It is precisely these trends which are bringing the world to disaster because we are now moving towards complete collectivism or socialism, uh, a system under which everybody is enslaved to everybody. And we are moving that way only because of our altruist morality. Ah, yes, but you say everybody is enslaved to everybody. Yet this came about democratically. I and the free people in a free country voted for this kind of government, wanted this kind of legislation. Do you object to the democratic process? I object to the idea that people have the right to vote on everything. The traditional American system was a system 
based on the idea that majority will prevail only in public or political affairs and that it was limited by inalienable individual rights. Uh -huh. Therefore, I do not believe that a majority can vote a man's life or property or freedom away from him. Therefore, I do not believe that if a majority votes on any issue, that this makes the issue right. It doesn't. All right. Then how do we arrive at action? How should we arrive at action? By voluntary consent, voluntary cooperation of free men, unforced. And how do our leaders arrive, how do we arrive at our leadership? Who elects, who appoints? Uh, the whole people elects. Uh, there is nothing wrong with the democratic process in politics. Uh, we arrive at it the way we arrived by the American Constitution as it used to be. By the constitutional process as we had it, uh, people elect officials, but the powers of those officials, the powers of government are strictly limited. They will have no right to initiate force or compulsion against any citizen except a criminal. Uh, those who have initiated force will be punished by force, and that is the only proper function of government. What we would not permit is the government to initiate force against people who have hurt no one, who have not forced anyone. We would not give the government or the majority or any minority the right to take the life or the property of others. That was the original American system. When you say take the property of others, I imagine that you're talking now about taxes. Yes, I am. And you believe that there should be no right by the government to tax. You believe that there should be no such thing as welfare legislation, unemployment compensation, regulation during times of stress, certain kinds of rent controls and things like that. That's right. I'm opposed to all forms of controls. I am for an absolute, laissez-faire, free, unregulated economy. Let me put it briefly. I'm for the separation of state and economics, just as we had separation of state and church, which led to peaceful coexistence among different religions after a period of religious wars. So the same applies to economics. If you separate the government from economics, if you do not regulate production and trade, you will have peaceful cooperation and harmony and justice among men. You are certainly enough of a political scientist to know that certain movements spring up in reaction to other movements. The labor movement, for instance, certain social welfare legislation. This did not spring full-blown from somebody's head, uh, I mean, out of a vacuum. This was a reaction to certain abuses that were going on. Isn't that true, Ayn? Uh, not always. It actually sprang up from the same source as the abuses. If by abuses you mean the legislation, which originally had been established to help industrialists, which was already a breach of complete free enterprise. If then, in reaction, uh, labor leaders get together to initiate legislation to help labor, that is only acting on the same principle, namely all parties agreeing that it is proper for the state to legislate in favor of one economic group or another. But what I'm saying is that nobody should have the right, neither employers nor employees, to use state compulsion and force. But when you, advocate, when you advocate completely unregulated economic life in which every man works for his own profit, you are asking, in a sense, for a 
a devil-take-the-hindmost, dog-eat-dog society, and one of the main reasons for the growth of government controls was to fight the robber barons, to fight laissez-faire, in which the very people whom you admire the most, Hein, the, the hard-headed industrialists, the successful men, uh, perverted the use of their power. Is that not true? No, it isn't. Uh, this country was made not by robber barons, but by independent men, by industrialists who succeeded on sheer ability. And who having by ability, I mean without political force, help, or compulsion. But at the same time, there were men, industrialists, who did use government power as a club to help them against competitors. They uh, were the original collectivists. Today, uh, the liberals believe that that same compulsion should be used against the industrialists for the sake of workers. But the basic principle there is, should there be any compulsion? And the regulations are creating robber barons. They are creating capitalists with government help, which is the worst of all economic phenomena. What I'd like to know is this, since you describe it as happening in your novel Atlas Shrugged, do you actually predict dictatorship and economic disaster for the United States? Uh, if the present collectivist trend continues, if the present anti-reason philosophy continues, yes, that is the way the country is going. But I do not believe in historical determinism and I do not believe that people have to go that way. Men have the free will to choose and to think. If they change their thinking, we do not have to go into dictatorship. Yes, but how can you expect to reverse this trend when, as we've said, the country is run by majority rule through ballot, and that majority seems to prefer to vote for this modified welfare state? Oh, I don't believe that. You know as well as I do that the majority today has no choice. What do you mean? The majority has never been offered a choice between controls and freedom. How do you account for the fact that an almost overwhelming majority of the people who are regarded as our leading intellectuals and our leading industrialists, the men whom you seem to admire the most, the men with the muscle and the money, favor the modified capitalism that we have today? Uh, because it is an intellectual issue. Uh, since they all believe in collectivism, they do favor it. But the majority of the people has never been given a choice. You know that both parties today are for socialism, in effect, for controls, and there is no party. There are no voices to uh, offer an actual pro-capitalist, laissez-faire, economic freedom and individualism. That is what this country needs today. I suspect that many of you hearing Ayn Rand's views of politics for the first time might understandably have a number of questions about how her philosophy of objectivism could possibly be applied to the real world of politics today. In particular, most are probably wondering how to address the many functions of government that are taken for granted today that would not exist in a truly free, laissez-faire economy particularly issues involving those we-are-our-brother's-keeper policies that most have come to take for granted and which most people support. From health care to welfare to how to finance the legitimate functions of government itself. 
Well, there's simply no time to address all of those concerns in the time remaining on our show today, but I do plan to address all of them and more on some future broadcasts exclusively focusing on those very questions. Not only will we explain how to deal with those issues, but why we must. But for the balance of today's show, I want to finish up with addressing Rand's final comments and what we just heard, relating to her assertion that the majority of people have never been given a choice, and there's no party and no voices to offer an actual pro-capitalist and individualism option, and that that is what this country needs today. Well, that statement in so many ways describes the emergence of the PPC in Canada and of the Freedom Party in Ontario. And her previous observations also explain why parties like the PPC and FPO, or parties like them, are eventual political necessities, but still have a long way to go before gaining popular political support. Now here's another very interesting statistic, one not cited in any of the previous assessments of the election. This one actually gleaned from the stat of Elections Canada itself, but based on two elections ago, 2015. It concerns the eligible voters who did not vote in that election. And at that time, 47% of eligible voters who didn't vote didn't vote because of personal everyday life or health reasons, including being too busy, being out of town, or illness and disability. Okay, fair enough. But when it came to political reasons, 39.5% of non-voters fell into this category. And the number one reason for people who found themselves in this category, the overwhelming majority said that they were not interested in politics, comprising a full 31.8% of all non-voters who were eligible to do so. And this figure dwarfs all of the other political reasons given, including lack of information about campaign issues and party positions, did not like candidates or parties or the campaign, felt voting would not make a difference, or did not know who to vote for. Each of those reasons averaged about 1.5%, with the highest being 3.1%. But they were all dwarfed by the 31.8% who were just not interested in politics. Now, when Robert Vaughn brought this set of stats to my attention, he also included a link to the site of the Freedom Party of Ontario, going back to its very roots in the mid-1980s, when this very constituency of those who do not vote fell into the not-interested-in-politics category. What might you say to people who are not interested in politics? How might you attract them? Well, here's what we said at the time. And this, I should add, was part of a piece written by yours truly and was originally directed towards an Ontario electorate and generated a lot of interest in Freedom Party. On the cover of a fold-over pamphlet that was delivered door-to-door was the heading, Maybe Politics Doesn't Interest You. And then when you opened the cover, it said, Maybe Freedom Does. And here was the pitch. Quote, When it comes right down to it, many people couldn't care less about politics and, quite frankly, We can't blame them. Almost every decision made for political reasons raises our taxes, reduces our choices, and ultimately restricts our freedom. Even worse, many of us feel totally helpless about the choices that politicians are making for us and frustrated when we discover that we are denied the right to make choices for ourselves. Our individual freedom of choice is fast disappearing. Many of our most important choices are being made for us by others, usually bureaucrats and politicians. Yet all of us must bear the responsibility of supporting their choices, even if many of us disagree with the choices we're forced to support. 
favoritism, special privilege, government waste, bureaucracy, strikes, taxes, red tape, censorship, accommodation shortages, labor and business monopolies, massive government debts, and laws that favor some at the expense of others. (laughs) Sound familiar? If you think that none of these issues has a direct effect on your life, your choices, even your happiness, look again. You might come to notice how the politicians of the traditional parties are really all the same. They all share a common belief that they should be making your choices for you and that the only purpose of elections is to give them the power to do so. Unfortunately, whenever we give politicians the power to make our choices for us, those choices simply aren't ours to make anymore, and that hurts everyone. What is needed today are elected representatives who believe we have a right to make our own choices for ourselves. And if there's one thing we don't need, it's more politicians who want to take our choices away from us. We need elected representatives who are committed to standing up for individual rights not for special interests. We need a political party that believes the purpose of government is to protect our individual freedom of choice and not to take it away from us. What voters need more than ever before is a new choice now, end quote. Gee, doesn't that sound an awful lot like the same thing that Ayn Rand said way back in 1959? You know, the real power in politics, that is, where voters actually have an ability to affect and create policies, not just reject or approve them, lies within the political party structure itself. Simply voting is not an exercise of political power. Voting is merely an act of agreement or disagreement with one of a given and limited set of options from which to choose. Your vote merely becomes part of a consensus on the given alternatives. It cannot create its own alternative. You cannot choose the good in politics if the good does not exist as a viable option, and that's what Ayn Rand was saying. If all you have to choose from, either to vote for or against, is a number of options that all represent the same ideology, well then don't be surprised if your country keeps drifting in the direction of that ideology, which today is entirely towards what we call the left. When voters say that they're voting strategically, or use a phrase like, I'm voting against X party or politician, they're really defeating their own values, assuming they even have any. But what people are really doing when they vote against something they don't want, which is called voting strategically, is that they end up voting for another party, not based on what that party represents or the ideology of that party, but for the likelihood of that party receiving the most votes capable of preventing the offending party from winning. They're just running in a political horse race, not participating in an ideological one, which is what politics is supposed to be all about. So if you're still wondering how Canada's Prime Minister Trudeau politically survived one scandal after another, from the SNC-Lavalin scandal to his blackface antics to his own exhibits of cultural appropriation when dressing in various costumes to the claims of his groping various women, well, there are so many scandals that I can't possibly list them all. Well, I hope we've opened some doors to explaining that electoral mystery. But it's no mystery that we once again find ourselves up against the clock, so we'll have to cut our conversation short for the time being and invite you to join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right. And be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Um.
under the bedclothes Everything will be alright I come with the old second-hand pickup That's the truck, not the wife <laughs> I'm not one of them show business male prigs that <laughs> thinks harass is two separate words. 